0: Section seventy seven of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. K. Neely. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part Two, Book Five, Chapter Two. The waif knows its own course all this had occurred owing to the circumstance of a soldier having found a bottle on the beach we will relate the facts in all facts there are wheels within wheels one day one of the four gunners composing the garrison of Castle Calshore picked up on the sand at low water a flask covered with wicker which had been cast up by the tide this flask covered with mold was corked by a tarred bung the soldier carried the waif to the colonel of the castle and the colonel sent it to the high admiral of england the admiral meant the admiralty with waifs the admiralty meant Barclay Pedro having uncorked and emptied the bottle carried it to the Queen the Queen immediately took the matter into consideration Two weighty counsellors were instructed and consulted, namely, the Lord Chancellor, who is by law the guardian of the king's conscience, and the Lord Marshal, who is referee in heraldry and in the pedigrees of the nobility. Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, a Catholic peer, who is hereditary Earl Marshal of England, had sent word by his deputy Earl Marshal, Henry Howard, Earl Bindon, That he would agree with the lord chancellor the lord chancellor was william cowper we must not confound this chancellor with his namesake and contemporary william cowper the anatomist and commentator on bidloo who published a treatise on muscles in england at the very time that etienne Abbeau published a history of bones in france a surgeon is a very different thing from a lord Lord William Cowper is celebrated for having, with reference to the affair of Talbot Yelverton, Viscount Longueville, propounded this opinion, that in the English Constitution the restoration of a peer is more important than the restoration of a king. The flask found at Calshore had awakened his interest in the highest degree. The author of a maxim delights in opportunities to which it may be applied. Here was a case of the restoration of a peer. Search was made. Gwynplaine, by the inscription over his door, was soon found. Neither was Hardquinone dead. A prison rots a man, but preserves him, if to keep is to preserve. People placed in Bastille were rarely removed. There is little more chance in the dungeon than in the tomb, hardquinone was still in prison at chatham they had only to put their hands on him he was transferred from chatham to london in the meantime information was sought in switzerland the facts were found to be correct they obtained from the local archives at vevey at lausanne the certificate of lord linnaeus's marriage and exile the certificate of his child's birth the certificate of the decease of the father and mother and they had duplicates, duly authenticated, made to answer all necessary requirements. All this was done with the most rigid secrecy, with what is called royal promptitude, and with that mole-like silence recommended and practiced by Bacon, and later on made law by Blackstone, for affairs connected with the chancellorship and the State, and in matters termed parliamentary. The usu regis and the signature jeffreys were authenticated to those who have studied pathologically the cases of caprice called our good will and pleasure this usu regis is very simple why should james ii whose credit required the concealment of such acts have allowed that to be written which endangered their success the answer is cynicism haughty indifference oh you believe that effrontery is confined to abandoned women. The reason taught is equally abandoned et sukupits antewii to commit a crime and emblazon it. There is the sum total of history. King tattoos himself like the convict, often when it would be to a man's greatest advantage to escape from the hands of the police or the records of history he would seem to regret the escaped, so great is the love of notoriety. Look at my arm. Observe the design. I am heir. See, a temple of love and a burning heart pierced through with an arrow. Usu Regis. It is I, James the Second. A man commits a bad action, and places his mark upon it. To fill up the measure of crime by effrontery, to denounce himself, to cling to his misdeeds, is the insolent bravado of the criminal. Christina seized Monaldeschi, had him confessed and assassinated, and said, I am the queen of Sweden in the palace of the king of France. There is the tyrant who conceals himself, like Tiberius, and the tyrant who displays himself, like Philip II. One has the attributes of the scorpion, the other, those rather of the leopard james the second. was of this latter variety. He had, we know, a gay and open countenance, differing so far from Philip. Philip was sullen, james jovial; both were equally ferocious. james the second. was an easy minded tiger; like Philip the second., his crimes lay light upon his conscience; he was a monster by the grace of God therefore he had nothing to dissimulate nor to extenuate, and his assassinations were by divine right. He, too, would not have minded leaving behind him those archives of Simancas, with all his misdeeds dated, classified, labeled, and put in order, each in its compartment, like poisons in the cabinet of a chemist. To set the sign-manual to crimes is right royal." every deed done is a draft drawn on the great invisible paymaster a bill had just come due with the ominous endorsement usu regis queen anne in one particular unfeminine seeing that she could keep a secret demanded a confidential report of so grave a matter from the lord chancellor one of the kind specified as report to the royal ear Reports of this kind have been common in all monarchies. At Vienna there was a counselor of the ear, an Aulic dignitary. It was an ancient Carlovingian office, the auricularius of the old Palatine deeds, he who whispers to the Emperor. William, Baron Cowper, Chancellor of England, whom the Queen believed in because he was short-sighted like herself, or even more so, had committed to writing a memorandum commencing thus. Two birds were subject to Solomon, a lapwing, the Hudbud, who could speak all languages, and an eagle, the Simerganka, who covered with the shadow of his wings a caravan of twenty thousand men. Thus, under another form, Providence, etc. The Lord Chancellor proved the fact that the heir to a peerage had been carried off Mutilated and then restored. He did not blame James the Second, who was, after all, the Queen's father. He even went so far as to justify him. First, there are ancient monarchical maxims e senioratu eripimus in roturagio cadat. Secondly, there is a royal right of mutilation. Chamberlain asserts the fact. "'Corpora bona nostrorum subjectorum nostra sunt,' said James I, of glorious and learned memory. "'The eyes of dukes of the blood royal have been plucked out for the good of the kingdom. "'Certain princes, too near to the throne, have been conveniently stifled between mattresses, "'the cause of death being given out as apoplexy. "'Now, to stifle is worse than to mutilate.' The king of Tunis tore out the eyes of his father, assam and his ambassadors have not been the less favorably received by the emperor. Hence the king may order the suppression of a limb like the suppression of a state, etc. It is legal, but one law does not destroy another. If a drowned man is cast up by the water, and is not dead, it is an act of God readjusting one of the king if the heir be found, let the coronet be given back to him. Thus was it done for Lord Allah, King of Northumberland, who was also a mount Bank. Thus should be done to Gwynplaine, who is also a king, seeing that he is a peer. The lowness of the occupation which has been obliged to follow, under constraint of superior power, does not tarnish the blazon. As in the case of Abdul Mumin, who was a king, although he had been a gardener, that of Joseph, who was a saint, although he had been a carpenter, that of Apollo, who was a god, although he had been a shepherd. In short, the learned Chancellor concluded by advising the reinstatement, in all his estates and dignities, of Lord Fermain Clancharlie, Clan Charlie, miscalled Gwynplaine, on the sole condition that he should be confronted with the criminal hard Quinone and identified by the same, and on this point the chancellor, as constitutional keeper of the royal conscience, based the royal decision. The Lord Chancellor added in a postscript that if Quinone refused to answer, he should be subjected to the Piene forte at Dore, until the period called the fraud mortel, according to the statute of King Athelstane, which orders the confrontation to take place on the fourth day. In this there is a certain inconvenience, for if the prisoner dies on the second or third day, the confrontation becomes difficult. Still, the law must be obeyed; the inconvenience of the law makes part and parcel of it. In the mind of the Lord Chancellor, however, the recognition of Gwynplaine by quinone was indubitable. Anne, having been made aware of the deformity of Gwynplaine, and not wishing to wrong her sister, on whom had been bestowed the estates of Clancharlie, graciously decided that the Duchess Josiana should be espoused by the new lord, that is to say, by Gwynplaine. The reinstatement of Lord Fermain Clancharley was, moreover, a very simple affair, the heir being legitimate, and in the direct line. In cases of doubtful descent and of peerages in abeyance claimed by collaterals, the House of Lords must be consulted. This, to go no farther back, was done in 1782, in the case of the barony of Sydney, claimed by Elizabeth Perry, in 1798, in that of the barony of Beaumont, claimed by Thomas Stapleton, in 1803, in that of the barony of Chandos, claimed by the Reverend Timewell Bridges, in 1813, in that of the Earldom of Banbury, claimed by General Nollies, etc., etc. But the present was no similar case. Here there was no pretense for litigation. The legitimacy was undoubted, the right clear and certain. There was no point to submit to the House, and the Queen, assisted by the Lord Chancellor, had power to recognize and admit the new peer. Barclal managed everything. The affair, thanks to him, was kept so close, the secret was so hermetically sealed, that neither Josiana nor Lord David caught sight of the fearful abyss which was being dug under them. It was easy to deceive Josiana, entrenched as she was behind a rampart of pride. She was self-isolated. As to Lord David— they sent him to sea, off the coast of Flanders. He was going to lose his peerage, and had no suspicion of it. One circumstance is noteworthy. It happened that at six leagues from the anchorage of the naval station commanded by Lord David, a captain called Halliburton broke through the French fleet. The Earl of Pembroke, President of the Council, proposed that this Captain Halliburton should be made Vice-Admiral, Anne struck out Halliburton's name, and put Lord David de in its place, that he might, when no longer a peer, have the satisfaction of being a vice-admiral. Anne was well pleased. A hideous husband for her sister, and a fine step for Lord David. Mischief and kindness combined. Her Majesty was going to enjoy a comedy. Besides, she argued to herself, that she was repairing an abuse of power committed by her august father she was reinstating a member of the peerage she was acting like a great queen she was protecting innocence according to the will of god that providence in its holy and impenetrable ways etc etc it is very sweet to do a just action which is disagreeable to those whom we do not like to know that the future husband of her sister was deformed suffice the queen in what manner Gwynplaine was deformed and by what kind of ugliness Barkilphedro had not communicated to the queen and Anne had not deigned to inquire she was proudly and royally disdainful besides what could it matter the house of lords could not but be grateful the lord chancellor its oracle had approved to restore a peer is to restore the peerage Royalty on this occasion had shown itself a good and scrupulous guardian of the privileges of the peerage Whatever might be the face of the new lord a face cannot be urged an objection to a right Anne said all this to herself or something like it and went straight to her object an object at once grand womanlike and regal Namely to give herself a pleasure the Queen was then at Windsor A circumstance which placed a certain distance between the intrigues of the court and the public. Only such persons as were absolutely necessary to the plan were in the secret of what was taking place. As to Barclaphaejo, he was joyful, a circumstance which gave a lugubrious expression to his face. If there be one thing in the world which can be more hideous than another, tis joy." HE HAD had THE DELIGHT OF BEING THE FIRST TO TASTE THE CONTENTS OF HARD Quinone's FLASK. HE SEEMED BUT LITTLE SURPRISED, FOR ASTONISHMENT IS THE ATTRIBUTE OF A LITTLE MIND. BESIDES, WAS IT NOT ALL DUE TO HIM, WHO HAD WAITED SO LONG ON DUTY AT THE GATE OF CHANCE? KNOWING HOW TO WAIT, HE HAD FAIRLY WON HIS REWARD. THIS NIL ADMIRARI WAS AN EXPRESSION OF FACE. At heart we may admit that he was very much astonished any one who could have lifted the mask with which he covered his inmost heart even before God would have discovered this, that at the very time Barkilphedro had begun to feel finally convinced that it would be impossible, even to him, the intimate and most infinitesimal enemy of Josiana, to find a vulnerable point in her lofty life. Hence an access of savage animosity lurked in his mind he had reached the paroxysm which is called discouragement he was all the more furious because despairing to gnaw one's chain how tragic and appropriate the expression a villain gnawing at his own powerlessness barcal was perhaps just on the point of renouncing not his desire to do evil to josiana but his hope of doing it not the rage but the effort but how degrading to be thus baffled to keep hate thenceforth in a case like a dagger in a museum how bitter the humiliation all at once to a certain goal chance immense and universal loves to bring such coincidences about the flask of hard came driven from wave to wave into barcliffe hands There is, in the unknown, an indescribable fealty which seems to be at the beck and call of evil. Barclfadro, assisted by two chance witnesses, disinterested jurors of the admiralty, uncorked the flask, found the parchment, unfolded, read it. What words could express his devilish delight? It is strange to think that the sea, the wind— space the ebb and flow of the tide storms calms breezes should have given themselves so much trouble to bestow happiness on a scoundrel that cooperation had continued for 15 years mysterious efforts during 15 years the ocean had never for an instant ceased from its labors the waves transmitted from one to another the floating bottle the shelving rocks had shunned the brittle glass no crack had yawned in the flask no friction had displaced the cork the seaweeds had not rotted the osier the shells had not eaten out the word hard quinone the water had not penetrated into the waif the mold had not rotted the parchment the wet had not effaced the writing what trouble the abyss must have taken Thus, that which Gernardus had flung into darkness, darkness had handed back to Barcol The message sent to God had reached the devil. Space had committed an abuse of confidence, and a lurking sarcasm which mingles with events had so arranged that it had complicated the loyal triumph of the lost child's becoming Lord Clancharlie with a venomous victory. In doing a good action, It had mischievously placed justice at the service of iniquity. To save the victim of James II was to give a prey to Barclfadro. To reinstate Gwynplaine was to crush Josiana. Barclfadro had succeeded, and it was for this that for so many years the waves, the surge, the squalls had buffeted, shaken, thrown, pushed, tormented, and respected this bubble of glass which bore within it so many commingled fates it was for this that there had been a cordial cooperation between the winds the tides and the tempests a vast agitation of all prodigies for the pleasure of a scoundrel the infinite cooperating with an earthworm destiny is subject to such grim caprices Barkilphedro was struck by a flash of titanic pride; he said to himself that it had all been done to fulfill his intentions; he felt that he was the object and the instrument. But he was wrong. Let us clear the character of chance. Such was not the real meaning of the remarkable circumstance of which the hatred of Barkilphedro was to profit. Ocean had made itself father and mother to an orphan, had sent the hurricane against his executioners, had wrecked the vessel which had repulsed the child, had swallowed up the clasped hands of the storm-beaten sailors, refusing their supplications, and accepting only their repentance. The tempest received a deposit from the hands of death. The strong vessel containing the crime was replaced by the fragile file containing the reparation the sea changed its character, and like a panther-turning nurse, began to rock the cradle, not of the child, but of his destiny, whilst he grew up ignorant of all that the depths of the ocean were doing for him. The waves to which this flask had been flung watching over that past which contained a future, the whirlwind breathing kindly on it, the currents directing the frail waif across the fathomless Wastes of water, the caution exercised by seaweed, the swells, the rocks, the vast froth of the abyss, taking under its protection an innocent child, the wave imperturbable as a conscience, chaos re establishing order, the world wide shadows ending in radiance, darkness employed to bring to light the star of truth, the exile consoled in his tomb, the heir given back to his inheritance, the crime of the king repaired, divine premeditation obeyed, the little, the weak, the deserted child, with infinity for a guardian. All this Sparkle Pedro might have seen in the event on which he triumphed. This is what he did not see. He did not believe that it had all been done for Gwynplaine, he fancied that it had been effected for Barcle and that he was well worth the trouble; Thus it is ever with Satan. Moreover, ere we feel astonished that a waif so fragile should have floated for fifteen years undamaged, we should seek to understand the tender care of the ocean. Fifteen years is nothing on the fourth of October, eighteen sixty seven on the coasts of Morbihan. Between the Isle de Croix, the extremity of the peninsula de Gavris, and the Rocher d'Erance, the fishermen of Port Louis found a Roman amphora of the fourth century, covered with arabesques by the incrustations of the sea. That amphora had been floating fifteen hundred years. Whatever appearance of indifference Barcolpheger tried to exhibit, his wonder had equaled his joy. Everything he could desire was there to his hand. All seemed ready-made. The fragments of the event which was to satisfy his hate were spread out within his reach. He had nothing to do but to pick them up and fit them together. A repair which it was an amusement to execute. He was the artificer. Gwynplaine. He knew the name. Masqueridens. Like everyone else, he had been to see the Laughing Man. He had read the sign nailed up against the Tadcaster Inn as one reads a playbill that attracts a crowd. He had noted it. He remembered it directly in its most minute details, and, in any case, it was easy to compare them with the original. That notice, and the electrical summons which arose in his memory, appeared in the depths of his mind— and placed itself by the side of the parchment signed by the shipwrecked crew like an answer following a question, like the solution following an anema. And the lines, Here is to be seen Gwynplaine deserted at the age of ten on the twenty ninth of January sixteen ninety on the coast at Portland, suddenly appeared to his eyes in the splendor of an apocalypse. His vision was the light of Mene tekel upharsin. Outside a booth. Here was the destruction of the edifice which made the existence of Josiana. A sudden earthquake. The lost child was found. There was a Lord Clancharlie. David Derimois was a nobody. Peerage, riches, power, rank, all these things left Lord David and entered Gwynplaine. All the castles, parks, forests, Townhouses, palaces, domains, Josiana included, belonged to Gwynplaine. And what a climax for Josiana! What had she now before her? Illustrious and haughty, a player, beautiful, a monster. Who could have hoped for this? The truth was that the joy of Barclfadro had become Enthusiastic. The most hateful combinations are surpassed by the infernal munificence of the unforeseen. When reality likes, it works masterpieces. Barclfadro found that all his dreams had been nonsense. Reality were better. The change he was about to work would not have seemed less desirable had it been detrimental to him. Insects exist which are so savagely disinterested that they sting— knowing that to sting is to die. Bargolfedra was like such vermin. But this time he had not the merit of being disinterested. Lord David, dearie owed him nothing, and Lord Fermain, clan Charlie, was about to owe him everything. From being a protege, Bargolfedra was about to become a protector. Protector of whom? Of a peer of England. He was going to have a lord of his own, and a lord who would become his creature. Barclfadro counted on giving him his first impressions. His peer would be the morganatic brother-in-law of the queen. His ugliness would please the queen in the same proportions as it displeased Josiana. Advancing by such favor, and assuming grave and modest airs, Barclfadro might become a somebody. He had always been destined for the church— He had a vague longing to be a bishop meanwhile he was happy oh what a great success and what a deal of useful work had chance accomplished for him his vengeance for he called it his vengeance had been softly brought to him by the waves he had not lain in ambush in vain he was the rock josiana was the waif josiana was about to be dashed against sparkle to his intense villainous ecstasy, he was clever in the art of suggestions, which consists in making in the minds of others a little incision into which you put an idea of your own, holding himself aloof and without appearing to mix himself up in the matter. It was he who arranged that Josiana should go to the green box and see Gwynplaine. It could do no harm the appearance of the mountbank in his low estate would be a good ingredient in the combination. Later on, it would season it. He had quietly prepared everything beforehand. What he most desired was something unspeakably abrupt. The work on which he was engaged could only be expressed in these strange words, the construction of a thunderbolt. All preliminaries being complete, he had watched till all the necessary legal formalities had been accomplished, the secret had not oozed out, silence being an element of law. The confrontation of Hard Quinone with Gwynplaine had taken place. Barcalfadro had been present. We have seen the result. The same day, a post-chaise belonging to the royal household was suddenly sent, by Her Majesty, to fetch Lady Josiana from London to Windsor, where the Queen was at the time residing. Josiana— for reasons of her own, would have been very glad to disobey, or at least to delay obedience, and put off her departure till next day, but court life does not permit of these objections. She was obliged to set out at once, and to leave her residence in London, Hunkerville House, for her residence at Windsor, Corleone Lodge. The Duchess Josiana left London at the very moment that the Wapentake appeared at the Tadcaster Inn to arrest Gwynplaine, and take him to the torture cell of Southwark. When she arrived at Windsor, the usher of the Black Rod, who guards the door of the Presence-Chamber, informed her that Her Majesty was in audience with the Lord Chancellor, and could not receive her until the next day, that, consequently, she was to remain at Corleone Lodge, At the orders of her majesty and that she should receive the queen's commands direct when her majesty awoke the next morning josiana entered her house feeling very spiteful supped in a bad humor had the spleen dismissed everyone except her page then dismissed him and went to bed while it was yet daylight when she arrived she had learned that lord david derimoire was expected at windsor the next day Owing to his having, whilst at sea, received orders to return immediately and receive Her Majesty's commands. End of section seventy seven. Recording by J. K. Neely of Texas.